Kelly letter goes all into stocks, inflation is stabilizing, and past stock market declines like this one led to solid recoveries. It's Wednesday, July 6, 2022. This is the Kelly Letter Podcast. I'm Jason Kelly. After the S&P 500 fell 20.6% in the first quarter, its worst first half since 1970, the Kelly Letter went all in yesterday. Surprise though that may be, these were our stock bond allocations per plan. 3SIG, 100% stocks, 0% bonds. 6SIG, which is our 2X leveraged mid-cap plan, 94% stocks, 6% bonds. And 9SIG, our 3X leveraged tech plan, 96% stocks, 4% bonds. This may be extreme, but it's just math-driven. All we do is react to price. That's it. This is not a forecasting system whatsoever. It simply looks back at what happened in the quarter, says prices are down, calculates how far down below the goal we want, and then moves in the right amount of money. With various rules in the plans, that's what we ended up with. 100% stocks 3SIG, 94% 6SIG, 96% 9SIG. That's close enough to call this all in. And if you have a bottom buying account, now is the time to use it. Well, yesterday was the time to use it, but there's still time. Bottom buying account, for those who don't know, is something I introduced in my book, The 3% Signal. It's simply money that's kept on the side, an extra set of reserve in case your, your, your bond fund in the plan runs out of money to, to fully fund the buy signal. When that happens, it's a clear indication that, that bargains abound, and now's the time to move in extra for a, for a bigger benefit when the recovery eventually comes. That's called a bottom buying account, and uh, we had big enough signals in, in 3SIG and 9SIG to exceed the, the plan's buying power. That indicates a green light for pulling in those extra reserves, that bottom buying account. Now, what exactly is the reason to be afraid here? Now, everybody's afraid when, when prices are, are falling. That's why we need a plan that tells us, no, when prices fall, that's when you buy. Let's look at the bearish arguments. Bears say the Fed will tighten more. We'll get higher interest rates. We're going to have quantitative tightening instead of easing. The, the good times that supported the economy during the pandemic are fading away, and that will cause trouble for stocks. Therefore, uh, profits will decline and so we'll forecast, and I, I, sh- I should clarify, that's what will cause stocks to go down, the bears say. The Fed's going to put the squeeze on the economy. That's going to send profits lower. That's going to bring down analyst forecasts, and this will result in prices coming down. Along with that, recession is inevitable, and analysts haven't accounted for declining profits, bears say. That's still coming. They still have estimates for profits that are way too high. And then another argument that's recently been creeping back into the discussion, not just in media, but also my inbox, which has been a fairly good zeitgeist for the mood of the market. I'm starting to see the same things I saw in 2008 and again in 2012, which goes like this. It's been a rigged market so far. The recent bull market gains were were ephemeral. It was all fake, doesn't count, driven by the Fed, etc. Gamed market, rigged market, whatever they want to call it. The tables are turned. And here's, here's the kicker for bears, but now there's nothing left to rig. 
There's no more gas in the tank. There's no more tools in the box, however they want to put it, whatever metaphor. The point being that the only reason stocks went up in the past had nothing to do with rising earnings, nothing to do with the long-term trend of the stock market. It was simply because the Fed was in there tipping the table, putting its finger on the scale, pumping the liquidity. That's what got us out of the subprime crash of 2008. That's what got us out of the COVID crash of 2020. And now that the Fed has used up all of its tools, shot all of its bullets, hosed out all of its liquidity, there is nothing left for it to do. This sounds compelling because the Fed really does get involved in the markets a lot, except the, the compellingness goes down a few notches. When you recall, we heard the same thing in 2008 because they were referring back to the dot-com bust at that point saying that, oh, the Fed shot its wad then. That's why housing went up so much. Now we're screwed. And then after all of the, the easing and help came out of 2008, they said it again in the COVID crash. Uh-oh, we're screwed this time because there's nothing left for the central bank to do. It can't raise interest rates much. It can't, or actually at that time, it can't send them down much because they're already near zero. So interest rates are near zero. The quantitative easing has already been done. There's nothing left to do. But somehow, somehow, every time the market recovers, how do they not notice this? Going back as far as we have data for, the market has always recovered from these gloomy times. Always. And why would they be gloomy times if everyone said, hey, it's going to be fine. The, the stock market is going to be fine. The economy is going to be fine. The Fed is going to be fine. It's made it through all past such crises. We're going to be fine. No, somehow that never comes into it. It's just always that it looks dire this time. And I... I you know, I always come back to this simple idea. The stock market is a man-made creation. It's man-made. It's man-maintained. It breaks. It goes through ups and downs. And it's always fixed because it can't be allowed to totally go bust. It's not going to just go to zero and stay there. Crises happen and crises get fixed. There's never an end of the tools in the shed. I mean, if, if really necessary, the thing can just be rebooted, so to speak. And, and we don't even have to go into detail. Someone will say, well, what would that reboot look like? It doesn't matter. For our purposes right now, it doesn't matter. The point is when stocks go down, they eventually go up. All our plans do is look at where prices have gone and react to those appropriately. I'll get into more of that a little bit later. But right now, as far as what the bears are saying, an economist I like actually put, put out a, a, a compelling bearish argument that's had a lot of press. Ed Yardini wrote last week, quote, apparently the analysts have yet to get recession memos from the managements of the U.S. companies they follow. That's because most of them aren't experiencing a recession so far. And it's true that business leaders are worried. J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon, Goldman Sachs President John Waldron, Tesla CEO Elon Musk, and Meta, that formerly Facebook, CEO Mark Zuckerberg, have all said the economy stinks. Zuckerberg told workers last week in an employee Q&A session, audio of which was heard by Reuters, and that's where I got the text, he said, quote, if I had to bet, I'd say that this might be one of the worst downturns that we've seen in recent history, end quote. Well, yeah, I, I suppose it, it could be. Part of that, though, might be that we really haven't had big downturns in recent history. I mean, the COVID crash was a was a was a fake crash. I mean, that was a 
artificially induced shutdown. They just hit the off switch on the economy while they battled the pandemic, which turned out to be not that big a deal. It never was as big a threat as they presented, but I won't go into that today. I did enough of that data crunching in letters during the pandemic showing that the threat of COVID was never as big as it was being presented in media. Even when infection rates were high, death rates weren't. And as far as the economic threat from that, all, all of it came from the, the artificially imposed shutdown. So I don't think we can really count the the COVID recession, so to speak, as being a real economic problem because it was simply self-induced while they fought the, the, the phantom pandemic. And and before that, what did we have go wrong? Not not much until we get all the way back to 2008. But there was plenty of bad news put out there by the perma bears, right? We can't say it was 10 straight years of nothing going wrong. There was all kinds of stuff they were saying was going wrong. But there wasn't a big recession. So when Zuckerberg says that this might be one of the worst downturns we've seen in recent history, considering that recent history without downturns goes all the way back to 2008, it's hard to disagree with that statement. Anyway, he is taking concrete actions that show he does believe this is pretty bad. Um, Meta, his, his company, has reduced its target for hiring engineers this year to around 6,000 to 7,000, down from an initial plan to hire about 10,000 new engineers. So we can say that, that the hiring plans at Meta are down 30 to 40%, and that does indicate quite a slowdown. We could also look at that and say, well, six to 7,000 new engineers. I mean, if that counts as a slowdown, it kind of shows from what a high base we're going. That's a lot of new engineers hiring on there. We're gonna do a lot of good things, and that's part of what's going to drive a recovery. The core of bearish arguments is, is this. The near term will bring two things, higher interest rates and lower earnings, and both will be bad for stocks. Okay, so that's, that's the, the crux of the bad news. But bad news isn't really news anymore, is it? I mean, how long have you been reading about these basic ideas that, that uh, stocks are too high, inflation is too high, the Fed needs to tighten up on policy. Oh, and by the way, Ukraine was invaded by Russia, which has sent oil through the moon, and that contributes to inflation. And then there's a sort of another layer of non-stock relevant gloom that's added on top of this. And I, I do emphasize that, that a lot of the gloom from general news has nothing to do with stocks, but nonetheless adds the idea that the world is going to hell in a handbasket. And in this category, we could add um, weekly mass shootings in America, a president who really doesn't seem to have a clue about anything and is suffering among the worst approval rates in history. His own party is considering not running him again for president. That just shows that it feels leaderless. People feel like the country doesn't have a leader. And, and it doesn't help when the president himself, Joe Biden, says, hey, these high prices are not my fault and there's not, not much I can do about them. So don't blame me. I mean, it's bad in other places, too. So give me a break. That is hardly the stuff of inspiration. And it adds to the idea of, oh, my gosh, things are bad and nobody has a clue how to make them better. Therefore, goes the inappropriate but widespread conclusion Things will only get worse for as far as I can see. And that's why bad news isn't really news anymore. Um, sentiment has been in the dumps for months. Now, I caution you as I go into this phase of today's episode that I'm not a believer in sentiment as a timing tool. Others are, but I'm not for the simple reason that I've monitored sentiment alongside price change. And it doesn't add anything. I mean, basically, when prices are down, sentiment is down. When prices are up, sentiment is up. 
And sentiment doesn't give us a concrete number to work with. I mean, what, what does it mean if, for example, the, the VIX is at 35, therefore I do what? Buy how many shares or sell how many shares? We can't translate a VIX number into a concrete stock market order. We want concrete, material, real, practical actions to take around here. We don't want more musings and fluff. So the way I handle sentiment is I look at three different sentiment indicators, all of which are objective, actual numbers we can work with to get a clear bead on sentiment, not just um, inflation, uh, rather a headline tagging or something to try to get a bead on the predominant themes. The three I use in my net sentiment indicator are CNN's Fear and Greed Index, which is an oscillator from zero extreme fear to 100 extreme greed. The AAII Bullish Sentiment, that's the American Association of Individual Investors, and each week they do a survey of their members and they, they show the bullish, bearish, and, and neutral sentiments. So I, I take the, the bullish part of that out. And then the, the third measurement is the VIX, which is the CBOE Volatility Index, and that just shows um, the level of fear in the market, basically. In fact, that's its nickname, the fear gauge. Now, one thing to notice about these is uh, the lower F and G is fear and greed. The lower that score, the higher the fear. The lower the AAII bullish score, the higher the fear. With the VIX, the higher the VIX, the higher the fear. So in order to put these together into a meaningful single number, the formula is this. The fear and greed score plus the AAII bullish score minus the VIX. Okay, that's that's how I run this simple overview of sentiment, and it gives me one number to look at. So when I run that num one number, the net sentiment number against price change, we see that it's been low and kind of oscillating along a low level all year. Um, the early low point it hit was back in March when it got down to eight. And I should just mention that this this net sentiment indicator basically goes between zero extreme fear and 100 extreme greed or optimism. Not exactly. It can exceed 100 and it can go below zero. But the way I have it in my tracker is the number turns blue whenever it goes either below 10 or above 90 because that jumps out and hints at me, okay, sentiment is reaching a meaningful extreme one way or the other. So far this year, we have had four different blue low numbers. Okay. Those were eight uh, the, the, the net sentiment indicator was at 8 on March 11th. It was at 7 on May 13th, 8 on May 20th, and it's low so far on this weekly cycle, 2 on June 17th. All right? It's a little bit higher than that now. It's up at 20 now. That's still low, but it's an improvement over a, a couple weeks ago. But look how long it's been down. And this is the idea of sentiment has been in the dumps for months. And notice also, sidebar, that none of those low sentiment indicators pointed to exactly a great time to buy. Um, I mean, kind of. Mid-June mid was a good point. But you know what happened at the exact same time we got that level two net sentiment indicator? Prices were at their lowest point so far. So all you need to look at is price. And that's all we do look at. But the point I'm making now is just that news has been so bad for so long, people have been in such a bad mood for so many months, that, that it's no longer really news to get more bad news, especially when it's the same type. High inflation, interest rates rising, recession on the way, government that doesn't have a clue what to do. So within that environment, what would be noteworthy? 
What would be news that we haven't heard again and again and again? The answer is good news. Good news would be the thing that would jump out. And so that's the surprise that, that we are poised to benefit from. I have no idea when it will come or what form it will take, but good news would be more notable than bad news. Well, one idea that could be encouraging good news in the months ahead is that inflation looks to be stabilizing. Ha, you don't hear that very often, right? The thing you heard about a lot last month and when May CPI came out, that's the Consumer Price Index, was that May CPI grew 8.6% on year above expectations and soul crushing to believers in March's peak inflation idea. That was even bandied about a bit at the Fed that, okay, we've hit our peak inflation numbers back in March. So people were ready. All right, we're going to start ramping down now. Here we go. Well, we didn't. But it was only a tad higher than March's 8.5%. Okay, the CPI growth was 8.5% on year in March, and in May it was 8.6%. I mean, and that's called, oh my gosh, we're not going down. It's a crisis. Well, look, sideways for three months is a sign of stabilization, not worsening. And global supply chain pressure is declining. Now, this matters because one of the key drivers of price inflation so far has been that because of various shutdowns, the, the supply chains are not delivering as much goods as people are demanding. Therefore, prices are going up. There's simply a shortage of many things because of supply chains having ground to a halt during the imposed lockdowns related to COVID. So... How do we get confident that that's going to finally go away, especially since the Fed's been saying for, for more than a year or starting a year ago that it would be temporary? One idea that many people talk about is that there's going to be a move to fix supply chains. We're going to onshore now. We're going to all move away from China. We're going to start making things at home. We're going to stop depending on overseas suppliers so we have more control over our supply chains and can't fall victim to various shutdowns like we have over the past couple of years. Well, think about that. Moves to onshore are not all good. I live in Japan. I'm recording this in Japan right now. And consider Japan for a moment. Natural disasters are frequent. Natural resources are scarce. So in Japan, a, the world's third largest economy and a major powerhouse on the scene, a higher reliance on domestic production would be risky, right? I mean, if, if Japan got all of its supplies from within Japan and Mount Fuji erupted, another tsunami hit, an earthquake struck, floods landslided a major factory and so on, then it could be screwed if it didn't have outside sources of the materials it needs to stay in business, right? Well, all countries are that way. The, the globalization was not entirely bad. It wasn't just about... Uh, conferring power on China and so on. I mean, there is risk mitigation involved with having global supply chains. So there is motivation to fix global supply chains, not just shut them down, not just onshore and bring everything back. They're going to reopen and they're, they're going to start delivering goods again. Everybody involved in the supply chain wants that to happen, even if countries disagree. For example, the U.S. and China are at loggerheads now and, and, and probably heading toward worse relations in the future. But the, the lower level below government business interest in the, the trading system wants to get this fixed. And evidence exists that it is starting to get fixed. Okay, The New York Fed started a global supply chain pressure index to, to just track how, um, the, how these pressures have gone over the years. 
and it is well above its pre-pandemic level of zero, okay? So there are still supply chain pressures, but you knew that. You knew that. We all knew that. Inflation is high. This, again, not news, right? But here's what might be a little more newsworthy. It's down to 2.9 from 4.4 in December. Now, this is not a, a well-known gauge, so let me provide a little perspective here. You, you can easily look at the chart of this metric yourself by just Googling New York Fed Global Supply Chain Index, Global Supply Chain Pressure Index, okay? And they show there a, a, a chart of this fluctuating along the zero line. Zero would be no pressures. Negative would mean that it's... it's, it's um, uh, even below neutral. So that would mean, I guess, that the supply chain is functioning better than usual. But it's been fluctuating in the zero to minus one range since about 1998. A few deviant spikes down below that in 2009, above that in 2011. But basically, it fluctuates along the zero to minus one zone. Well, then in the pandemic, it spiked up to, in April 2020, it went to 3.4, okay? Then it got almost back down to zero again on October 2020. Things are starting to open up. That's when you probably remember th things were looking a lot better uh, as we were heading toward getting vaccines. Well, then we had another leg of trouble, and it went to its peak so far in the cycle of 4.4 in December of last year. Okay, And now it's down to, to 2.9. So back to normal? No, no, the situation's not fixed, but it's heading back in that direction. At the same time, the Fed and other central banks are working to offset inflation pressures. The, the Fed has interest rates rising, and now we have supply chain pressures declining. So I think it's reasonable to expect that inflation will abate in the second half of the year. And now, breaking good news, just yesterday, okay, here's a bonus on the inflation front. The price of oil slipped under $100. This is a big deal. It was up much higher, 120 130 okay? Recession fears, which are presented as bad news, right, where the economy might go into recession, well, those recession fears have, have introduced a positive function, and that is reducing the price of oil. It is under $100 as of yesterday's session. Remember that the Fed, through its tighter monetary policy, wants a slowdown in order to cool prices. It doesn't want a recession, but it wants to cool things down so that prices will decline and inflation will come off the boil. Well, Here's one piece of evidence suggesting that it's working. The price of oil is under 100, and the reason given for that is lower demand expected on recession fears. All right. So what is my point here? Am I telling you that stocks are going to go up right away? No. Please allow me to squash that immediately. I am not in the forecasting business anymore. I used to be. I am not. And the reason I'm not is because it doesn't work. I realized even as I was winning forecasting competitions that I really didn't know and there was some luck involved. And yes, I tried my best, but everybody does. And all the top analysts have about a 50% mistake rate, okay? I realized that is nothing to hang my hat on. So I am out of the forecasting business. What I am in now is the price reaction business, okay? And that's the only thing I'm talking about here. I am not forecasting anything, actually, including the decline of inflation or the avoidance of a recession. I don't know, okay? And I'm telling you straight up, I don't know. The only thing my plans look at, the only thing the Kelly Letters plans notice is that stocks are cheap. 
That's all that happened yesterday. That big buy where we went all in, the plans made zero forecasts about the future. All they did was look at the great decline that appeared in the first half, most of it in the second quarter, and jumped on that decline. That's it. The only thing the plans know from history is that when prices go down, have gone down as much as they have recently, they have gone back up, okay? The reason our plans buy cheap stocks is that they eventually go higher. We don't know when. We don't know why. I don't even think it's worth thinking about that. Simply, the relationship is when stocks have gone down as much as they've gone down, you buy them because they're going to eventually go back up. Now, let's go through some of that, not as a timing exercise, but to show a picture of history, the picture of history that led to the creation of these plans. This is something that Mark Holbert emphasized in his op-ed a few weeks ago at MarketWatch. It was, it was called, Those Who Buy Stocks the Day the S&P 500 Enters the Bear Market Have Made an Average of 22.7% in 12 Months. That was the title of his article, which pretty much gives you the whole story there. But he goes on, The Odds Favor Buyers and or Holders in Current Price Weakness. Quote from Mark Holbert's article, in two of the 12 major declines since World War II, in which the S&P 500 fell by more than 20%, you would have been sitting on a loss 12 months subsequent to buying on the day the 20% loss threshold was violated. But even in those two cases, you eventually came out ahead. It just took longer than a year. In any case, notice that this means that in 10 of the 12 cases since World War II, you were sitting on a profit in a year's time. Those aren't terrible odds. End quote. Right, they're not. And I pointed out in yesterday's morning email, something from the Keller Letters Note 25 of this year sent Sunday, June 19th. It pointed out that because the stock market is a forward-looking mechanism, it does most of its recession-related declining ahead of the recession itself, then begins recovering while the recession lingers, so that by the time economic data turn rosy again, stocks are much higher. That's why people who wait around for the news to improve before buying miss out on the bulk of the recovery. In October 2008, which was the heart of the subprime mortgage crash, Warren Buffett wrote an op-ed to this effect in the New York Times called Buy American, I Am. From his op-ed, quote, A simple rule dictates my buying. Be fearful when others are greedy and be greedy when others are fearful. And most certainly, fear is now widespread, gripping even seasoned investors. Let me be clear on one point. I can't predict the short-term movements of the stock market. I haven't the faintest idea as to whether stocks will be higher or lower a month or a year from now. What is likely, however, is that the market will move higher, perhaps substantially so, well before either sentiment or the economy turns up. So if you wait for the robins, spring will be over. End quote. He was right, of course, and you can be sure that if that held true in 2008's more serious threat to the financial system, it's true now. Set aside all the screaming about the problems we face. This is an ordinary Fed policy cycle into non-remarkable territory. I mean, interest rates are going up. That's what a central bank does. It adjusts interest rates, and they're not even heading toward unusually high territory. They're still very low. They're just not at zero. And this so far looks nothing at all to be on a par with the subprime mortgage crash and Lehman shock. But you know what people said then? Back during that crash, people said the Fed was out of options, just like they're saying now. Remember this from earlier in the episode? The Fed's out of options. There's nothing it can do. It's powerless, powerless, powerless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But recoveries always happen. It's powerless every time. This time is different. This is the one recovery that will never appear. And then it does. Let's go on to another example from Mark, Mark Holbert's bear market idea. 
buying in the bear market, that is. Two weeks ago, in the Kelly Letters Note 26, I shared a research note from Ryan Dietrich, the chief market strategist at San Diego-based LPL Financial. He wrote that in previous years that were down at least 15% at the midway point to the year, saw the final six months higher every single time, with an average return of nearly 24%. He presented tables of data showing that since 1928, all January to June declines of more than 15% were followed by gains in the second half of the year, the average being the aforementioned nearly 24% and the median being 15.3%. There were only five such declines, a small sample, but meaningful in highlighting the rareness of the opportunity before us, the one that our signals jumped on yesterday. There were seven quarters, not halves, but quarters, in which the S&P 500 declined by at least 15%, and those also presaged excellent recoveries. Six of the seven were followed by gains in the following quarter, and all seven showed gains over the next two and four quarters. The average two-quarter gain was... 17.1%, and the average four-quarter gain was 29.6%. Okay, so another idea that when stocks go down this much, the next thing they do is go back up. We can't know when, we can't know why, but we just know that down is followed by up, and here is more evidence to present that. Now let's get just one more to show that this is not just baseless hope, okay? Yet another factor hinting that our signals probably bought at a good time is the presidential cycle. This was first presented by Yale Hirsch in the first edition of his Stock Traders Almanac in 1967. According to Hirsch's theory, after entering the White House, the president works on his most deeply held policy convictions and panders to the special interests of those who got him elected. These kind of activities are not especially beneficial to the economy or stocks, so it's just a middling set of returns over the first two years. There isn't an absolute crash in the the second year. A lot of people have posited that, that the second year of a president's term always has a crash. Not really. The the, the better way to present this is that years one, two, and four look just average, along with the the stock stock market's long-term arc. But year three exhibits an unusual bump, okay? And Hirsch's theory is that that's because as the next election looms, the president focuses on bolstering the economy in order to get reelected. So as a result of that, the policies he's running to try to look better, the stock market is more likely to gain. So that produces the strongest year of the presidential cycle, year three. Well, we are halfway through year two, and the first half of this year was a big crash. The stock market is in a bear market, and we're halfway through year two, heading toward year three, right? And stocks tend to get started ahead of time given their forward-looking nature. I do not know if that will happen this time. This is just what has happened in history. In 2016, Charles Schwab confirmed this third-year bump, analyzing data back to 1950. And sure enough, the other three years of the presidential cycle delivered averages about on a par with the long-term average of the stock market, so the only notable part of the cycle was the atypically strong third year. That's next year. The following are the average returns found in the Schwab study by year of the presidential cycle. Year after election, up 6.5%. Second year, up 7%. Third year, up 16.4%. Fourth year, up 6.6%. Since 1950, the average annual return of the S&P 500 was 7.7%. So you can see that years 1, 2, and 4 are just along that range. Only year 3 stands out, and it stands out in a very positive way. 
And that's good to know, right? So there we go. Three different studies suggesting a recovery ahead. Number one, buyers into bear markets usually have a good 12 months ahead. Number two, first half declines like this year's usually lead to good second halves. And number three, the third year of a president's term is usually the strongest. Now, this shouldn't be a big shock, right? Because these and other such past studies are simply confirming what is the truth of stocks. Despite a long history of ever-present reasons to be bearish, the stock market rises two-thirds of the time. After it has fallen during one of the rare one-third phases, it's time to buy for the coming recovery. Now, I can't emphasize enough. The Kelly letter did not buy yesterday because of these studies. It was not a bid to time the bottom. Rather, its plans are designed, were designed from the long arc of history, which shows that buying low prices produces solid returns. And the plans run a formula each quarter to determine if the quarter's price change signals a buy or a sell, based only on what happened in the quarter, not on a guess about the future. Okay, so it's so easy to see this. The Kelly letter goes all in. That's clearly a vote for a better future. Yeah, kind of, but it doesn't get there that way. It gets there the other direction. Stocks went down so much in the last quarter that we are buying big time. That's really how the plans work. But even so, it helps to revisit historical studies confirming the wisdom of buying in the low price phases when news is always bad and the mood gloomy. If you bought with the letter yesterday, congratulations on following the system. I cannot guarantee you an immediate recovery, but I can guarantee you that history is on your side. And the letter will keep following these plans doggedly with discipline because this is all we can hang our hat on is reaction to price change. Tune out the commentators, the chatterboxes, the people with ulterior motives who encourage you to pay for services that will supposedly help you avoid downswings and all that bunk that Warren Buffett has, has poo-pooed and everybody smart in this business has said, huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tune all that stuff out. The only thing you can really count on is price change and reaction to it. When prices are down this low, you buy. And we go a step beyond that and follow a system that, that codifies that, that makes it clear exactly what to do with the price change that has happened. It is so much more refreshing than the 24-7 chatter cycle. All right. Thank you for listening. This is the Kelly Letter Podcast. I'm Jason Kelly. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe to the podcast. And I would love it if you would share it with a friend and write a positive review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. To interact with other listeners, please find this episode's show notes at jasonkelly.com and dive into the comments section. I'm there too, so we can interact right there. If you're not a Kelly Letter subscriber, why not? I'd like to welcome you. Subscribe today at jasonkelly.com to access onboarding materials and start your own market-beating SIG plans. I send new letters every Sunday morning. Current subscribers, thank you for your support, and I'll see you Sunday.